Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the podcast for the believers, the doubters and everyone in between. Winter has started. We're talking to you in full thermal accoutrements. Yes, I've got my thermals on. Uh, It took me about 20 minutes to defrost the car coming over here. So if you're listening to us from a warmer climb, I'm quite jealous. Yeah, I'm quite jealous. Although (laughs) it's that thing, though, because everything's kind of frozen and white, which is nice. But we haven't had any snow that I've noticed. I've kind of been looking out the window and checking the weather forecast. Oh, 20% chance of snow, maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, Manchester Airport was shut yesterday Ooh. with snow. Well, so could be coming, could be coming. Winter is coming, as they Winter say. Winter is very much coming, yeah. And it's, um, yeah, coming up to Christmas too. So um, we'll, we'll, I think I've got something slightly Christmassy for next week. Excellent. Um, the spookier side of Christmas, but not the story you expect. But <laughs> I've got to check the story goes somewhere because I've only started, just started <laughs> researching it. So I hope it does turn into something. It's, it's the journey, not the destination. It's the journey, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Talking of journeys, oh, I um, I wanted to take a journey around the galaxy a little bit today. Oh, nice segue. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say, Ben, oh, that the dog is pouring, <laughs> <laughs> is pouring at the door wanting to get in. Shall we let him in? Let's let him in. All right. He'll only on. get bored. <laughs> Come on then. Right, dog, behave. We're doing very serious work here. Okay. I'll start that sentence again. So, Ben, I think it's fair to say that Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is one of our all-time favourite sci-fi tales. A hundred percent, it is. Absolutely loved that thing. Yeah. And it was one of my kind of favourite little parts of this incredible piece of work that got me thinking about today's episode. Do you remember the kind of almost throwaway bit that there's these two warring aliens who believe they've been insulted by a comment by Arthur Dent and head to Earth to wreak revenge. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Oh, well, let, let's um, let's listen to a short clip of that as it explains it much more eloquently than I can. Have a listen to this and then we'll uh, we'll chat about it. At the very moment that Arthur Dent said, I wouldn't want to go anywhere without my wonderful towel, a freak wormhole opened up in the fabric of the space-time continuum and carried his words far, far back in time across almost infinite reaches of space to a distant galaxy where strange and warlike beings were poised on the brink of frightful interstellar battle. The two opposing leaders, resplendent in their black-jeweled battle shorts, were meeting for the last time when... A dreadful silence fell, and at that very moment, the words, I wouldn't want to go anywhere without my wonderful towel, drifted across the conference table. Unfortunately, in their native tongue, this was the most appalling insult imaginable. So the two opposing battle fleets decided to settle their few remaining differences in order to launch a joint attack on our galaxy, positively identified as the source of the offending remark. For thousands of years, the mighty starships tore across the empty wastes of space and finally dived screaming onto the planet Earth, where, due to a terrible miscalculation of scale, 
the entire battle fleet was accidentally swallowed by a small dog. Those who study the complex interplay of cause and effect in the history of the universe say that this sort of thing is going on all the time. Oh my God! If we have, if we play a clip of uh, Stephen Fry, just makes me look bad. I know. He's, <laughs> yeah, I told you it was much more eloquent than than, uh, than we could be. I love that. I love that. But this all got me thinking. As with a lot of Douglas Adams' work, there are some major themes behind the smallest tongue-in-cheek detail, which I think kind of you know that that's littered throughout the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it's that concept of scale that I started to focus on. And if we start with our depiction of alien creatures in science fiction and fantasy, I think they've traditionally been framed in a human scale in terms of size and to a certain degree in terms of appearance. Yeah, bipedal. Yes, and I think there's a solid reason for this. Firstly, I think that some level of familiarity, either in size or feature is easier for us human beings to relate to and in some ways makes those alien creatures more scary. I guess it kind of provides an uncomfortable frame of reference for us humans, right? It does. And in the old days, of course, it was easier to get an actor to put a suit on. Well, that, <laughs> which is my second point. Oh, right. Yeah. I think especially when it comes to science fiction on the big screen, as you're saying, there is a practical element. So if you take my all-time favourite movie alien creature, H.R. Geiger's creature design for Ridley Scott's masterpiece Alien, that creature was partly that size, just as you're alluding to, so they could get a person inside it, right? Yeah, yeah. And CGI and special effects were not what they are today. Um, So, yeah, I think there's this history of sci-fi movies where there's the practical and the familiarity that kind of works together. Mm. And obviously, as special effects and technology have developed, uh, alien creatures, or at least some of them, have become bigger, less humanoid. I was thinking of films like Cloverfield, Mm -hmm. Monsters and Arrival. They're all good examples of that trend, right? Yeah. So you can understand that back in the day of minimal CGI, aliens taking on a rough human size and form makes sense. Yeah. However, it seems to me the majority of real-life extraterrestrial sightings follow that humanoid pattern. Yeah. And generally, a rough human scale also right applies. Yes. So the typical alien grey is, you think of it as like a small human or a kind of human child, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And most reported alien encounters involve something that is humanoid, or at least on a scale we can identify with. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, humanoid in the loosest sense, some of them. Mm -hmm. And then I started thinking, this sense of scale also translates to UFO craft sightings. Mm. So Roswell and other UFO sightings of that ilk, especially from around that time, flying saucers, okay, they're not the same shape as terrestrial flying machines, but in terms of scale, they kind of seen as the size of a small aircraft. Yeah, yeah. And it's a theme we've touched upon, haven't we, when we're looking at World War One examples of, of reported alien craft that, you know, taking on the airship design, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and even Bob Lazar spoke about how, you know, he could get on board one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And even reports of what could have been large UFO craft, like the ones in the Phoenix Lights incident, I mean, they're still on a scale that is kind of relatable to us, yeah. right? And I think that word relatable is interesting here because it's tended to shape how we approach our search for extraterrestrial life as well, possibly because of techno technological limitations. But I wonder also our frame of reference. So the search is generally framed in a way that's understandable to us humans. So I'm thinking of SETI looking for radio waves and, and other kind yeah. of waves. You know, we put a gold record on the Voyager probe. Yes. As a way of reaching out to alien civilizations. Yes. Um, so at this point, I wanted to talk briefly about Dyson spheres. Have you heard of these, Ben? I have, yeah. These, the, these are the things... We thought we'd spotted some at some point, didn't we? We did. I'm going to come on to that. Right. Yeah, so... Uh, Dyson spheres, they're not a new vacuum cleaner technology, which they do, they do sound like one. <laughs> they do, yes. <laughs> new Dyson spheres. Um, it, what it is is a theoretical concept. It was first described, actually, I didn't know this, in a science fiction novel by Olaf Stapledon in 1937 in his book Star Maker. So this concept first appeared then. And then the idea was developed by English mathematician and physicist Freeman Dyson in the 1960s. Oh, right. So that, I thought, was fascinating, that the original idea had come from a work of science fiction in a, in a novel. Um, now, the concept suggests that an alien culture could place a giant energy-absorbing or giant energy-absorbing panels around a star and that this could create enough energy to power something like spaceships that were capable of interstellar travel. Uh, some of the, if you look online, uh, some of the kind of artist's impressions of how this might work are just amazing. But it, I guess it's like it's encasing a simple, a simple explanation would be it's encasing a star in kind of lots of solar panels to get the energy mm, out of it, mm. right? And as you mentioned, Ben, indeed in 2015, some astronomers thought they may have found a Dyson sphere in operation in the constellation of Cygnus. So Cygnus is approximately 1,470 light years from Earth. Mm -hmm. The star's classification is KIC 8462852. But luckily for me, for the rest of this bit, it's also known as Tabby Star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could have been there all... I, I, I know if I'd have had to say the proper uh, classification, I'd have got it wrong It's also time. your Wi-Fi password. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, damn, I've given it away. <laughs> now, this star's irregular and sudden dimming led some to believe it may be encased in a Dyson sphere, uh, which may have been created by an alien culture to harness that star's energy. Mm. Now, recent studies uh, have put forward a more logical 
explanation as to what is going on with Tabby's star. And it's likely connected to an exomoon orbiting the star, and that results in the dimming. So there is there is split opinion oh, okay. about whether this is actually a Dyson sphere. That's a much, sphere. much more boring explanation. It is. Like, life would be a lot more interesting if it was the other one. Yeah. Um, however, the original idea of a Dyson sphere does tie into our narrative of an alien race harnessing energy in order to send interstellar craft out to explore the galaxy. So for me, that's quite handy for the rest of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and that reminded me of the objects that I, I couldn't say last time we covered it, and you could, but I think I've got it now. Uma, oh, oh no, I still can't do it. Oma Mua. Oma Mua. Oma Mua. That's it. You see, I can't do it. There's, it's like there's a block in my brain. <laughs> you just have to think like a cow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what, let's do that bit again. And when I say this reminds me of, you could just say it. All right, you ready? This reminds me of the. Oma Mua. Object that we have previously talked about on the podcast. <laughs> Probably a lot longer than that. <laughs> so, in summary, this was a large dark cigar-shaped object. It was about 800 metres or half a mile long and it was spotted passing through our solar system in 2017. Now, at the time, some theories believed that it could be an ancient alien probe speeding through our solar system. Though other astronomers prefer a more natural explanation for the objects, And I think they would only have embraced the alien probe theory if they had observed, like, massive course corrections in its trajectory, which didn't happen. So it is just... It's travelling in a a style that would be uh, right for a non-alien probe. But, you know, I guess that doesn't mean it's not. (laughs) No, exactly, yeah. And that got me thinking... That alien civilizations wanting to explore the galaxy would not, at least initially, come in person. They would be more likely to send unoccupied probes, or at least probes driven by robots, mm-hmm. to scope out where and what might be of most interest for them to visit in person. Now, maybe I'm coming at this from a very human kind of relatable reference point because that's mainly what we've done right in our limited exploration of space yeah i mean it still amazes me if you really dissect it that you know humankind has only traveled in person to our closest satellite the moon yeah yeah that's right even our closest planets have only been so far explored by unmanned probes or machines yes and you know, and, and if you think at how small a distance we've come, I think, was it last year or the year before that the unmanned Voyager probe only just left our solar system, right? Yeah, yeah. So it seemed logical to me that a far more advanced alien civilization would start to explore the galaxy through probes rather than come, like I said, at least initially in person, right? So probes first. Which brings into the debate the work of the Hungarian-American mathematician, physicist and computer scientist, Hon von Neumann. Hon von Neumann? Yeah. 
I love his films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wasn't he in The Great Escape? I think he was. <laughs> now, von Neumann theorised that alien civilizations would indeed create probes that would then explore the galaxy. But he also added a new dimension. Von Neumann believed that these probes would be self-replicating. Their primary objective would be to travel the solar system in exploration. However, part of their programming would be to seek out the materials used in their construction and then replicate themselves. Which is a really interesting theory, I think. Sort of AI, really. Yeah, kind of. Now, in this way, the probes could multiply and explore new parts of the galaxy, operating in very, I guess, very much the same way a virus would, right? Mm. Now, in a 1983 academic paper, Robert A. Freitas Jr. from the Xenology Research Institute conducted a mathematical study of how extensively these probes could spread. And then this really surprised me. He concluded that a self-replicating starship utilising relatively conventional theoretical methods of interstellar travel, brackets, it says here, i.e. non-exotic, faster-than-light propulsion and speeds limited to average cruising speed. I don't know what any of that means, but... (laughs) Well, I suppose... Like thousands of miles an hour rather than tens of thousands of miles right, an hour, right. I guess. I guess. He calculated the probes could spread throughout a galaxy the size of the Milky Way in as little as half a million years. Really? Yeah. Wow. Which, yeah, that just blew me away when I read that. That's an amazing statistic. Yeah. I would have... Wow, half a million years, okay. That's, that's In cosmic terms, that's the blink of an eye, right? Of course, Absolutely. Now, at this point, I have to mention the Fermi paradox. Oh, yes. Where is everyone? Yeah. Yeah, that is exactly it. I I guess the simple explanation of the paradox is our solar system is relatively young compared to the rest of the universe. That aliens with a certain level of technology and development and the desire could rapidly colonise the galaxy. And if you take into account the von Neumann principle, in pretty short space of time, they could do that. So the fact we have never seen them and that they haven't colonised us means they cannot exist. Mm, mm. Now, this ties into the other argument that you hear all the time when it comes to why haven't we seen alien life on Earth, that the universe is so large that they may not have found us or may have died out before they could achieve their aim. Now, work around the Fermi par- paradox estimates that our alien overlords could colonise the galaxy in tens of millions of years. So this is without the reproduction of the probes. And if you factor in self-replication, uh, that time frame come down to as little as half a million years. So why haven't we seen them? Many would argue that is because they don't exist. But astrophysicist Zazar Osmanov from the Free University of Tbilisi in Georgia believes that when it comes to the Fermi paradox of von Neumann probes, we haven't been thinking big enough. Well, to be precise, we haven't been thinking small enough. Oh, 
So what, they're here but we can't see them? Yep. Osmoninoff concludes that von Neumann's replication probe theory works best if the machines are microscopic. He theorises if these replicating machines were the size of a nanometer, which I had to look up. Can you know how big a nanometer is? A millionth of a metre? I was going to say close, but you really aren't. It's a billionth of a metre. Oh, wow. The resources they would need to reproduce would be widely accessible. He suggested they could use hydrogen atoms as a power source, which are readily available in interstellar dust. So I think uh, von Neumann's original idea was, I think, thinking along the lines that I was talking about earlier, they'd be kind of what we would imagine a probe or a spaceship to be, and they would have to find rocky planets to find all the elements that they needed to recreate. But this theory suggests that if they were a nanometer, they could literally find it from dust in the galaxy. Mm, that makes sense. We sort of um, we we've got this idea of nano machines, haven't we, on Earth? Like nano machines that self-replicate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Prince Charles said he was worried about them because we'd disappear under grey sludge if we didn't quite understand how to control them. But, yeah, I mean, if we've thought of them, another race would have. Yeah, yeah. Well, Oswananoff says, we have analysed efficiency of micro-scale von Neumann probes versus macro robots, and we found that the former might efficiently reproduce in interstellar media, whereas the large-scale automator can replicate only on rocky planets, requiring additional manoeuvring and resources. He hypothesises that this is a much more efficient and faster way for these micro-alien machines to reproduce and reach all areas of the galaxy. This would happen in the matter of a few light years, rather than longer timescales needed for macro-scale machines. So if you go, if you go nano-size, you're not talking even half a million years, you're just talking a few light years. I see. Osmoninov calculated that by the time the offspring of an initial population of 100 microprobes had travelled just four light years, their number would have grown to a population of... Are you ready for a really big number? Go on, then. It's a one followed by 33 zeros. Jesus, Louise. <laughs> so that's in four light years, so from the original batch of 100 to one with 33 zeros. Wow, okay. And at that rate of reproduction, these teeny-weeny von Neumann probes could travel the galaxy in a considerable quicker time frame than half a million years. But what can they do? Well, that is a good point. What can they do? I mean, I would imagine... Well, let's think if... What have we done? And I know this is... Maybe we're falling into that gap. But you would want them... So if you go with this theory, it's a big universe out there. It's a big galaxy. If the search is to find other forms of life, which is what our search with things like Voyager, well, I guess, no, it wasn't really, but I guess ultimately that is one of the key aims to find other extraterrestrial life. Mm. 
you'd want these things all over the galaxy sending back data to tell you where the best place for you to turn up in person would be. Wouldn't we hear them sending the data back? Depends how you're listening for it, right? Mm. Depends how they send it and yeah. on what scale. So it does still leave the question, why haven't we seen them? And I guess the answer to that question depends on, just as I was saying, how we are looking, if we are looking, firstly, how we are looking, if we are, and how these probes are travelling and behaving. So there is this theory that they would travel in large swarms, that potentially we should be able to spot them. They may be visible in the way like a tail of a comet might be detectable. So we might see sparkling of light out in uh, our solar system or wherever. But I was thinking about this assumes that they are programmed to travel in a swarm, right? Because these are computer programmed mm. things. Mm. Now, if I was an alien civilization and created these replicating microprobes, then surely there's an argument that they want them to explore every nook and cranny of the galaxy. That after reproducing a new probe, the new one goes off on its own journey rather than them all travelling together. Mm. Maybe that... I mean, there is logic that I guess there are areas of space where they might want to club together to cross. But, you know, it's a huge assumption to say they would all clump together rather than just go off and do their own thing. So if we go with Osmanov's theory that alien microprobes should already be in our solar system, they should have already explored our planet, or even they should be in this room as we speak, Ben. Unless bears eaten them. <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs> Unless they've been eaten by the dog. <laughs> <laughs> he is looking rather full and sleepy, isn't he? He is looking full and sleepy. <laughs> He's had a stellar meal. Well, this idea of uh, alien microscopic life, whether organic or artificial, is not only been thought of by Oz Mananov. It's also been suggested by one of the scientists involved in landing the Philae spacecraft on the comet 67P in 2014. He was a rubbish rapper. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is not the one where they kind of crashed into it to see whether they could... Knock it off course. This was the yeah. one where I think they landed and they took samples and put data coming back. Yeah, yeah. So there were no signs of life that were identified on the comet 67P. But uh, Professor Wick Rama Singhi and his colleagues on the mission, Dr Max Wallace, believe that if not the 67P comet then certainly other comets have the potential to be perfect breeding grounds for alien microscopic life. So this is not probes, this is actual alien life. Mm -hmm. And put forward, they put forward the tantalising idea that such comets may be responsible for life on Earth, which would mean that we're all aliens, basically. I love that idea, though. I love that idea. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it, yeah. when you think about it? Yeah. Um, Professor Wickrama Singh, says, 500 years ago, it was a struggle to have people accept that the Earth was not the centre of the universe. After that revolution, our thinking has remained Earth-centred in relation to life and biology. 
It's deeply ingrained in our scientific culture and it will take a lot of evidence to kick it over. Which is a great point. I it think. is a great point, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess it's partly just because we don't know what we don't know, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And therefore, you sort of assume that life started here because that's where the evidence is but it doesn't necessarily mean that the evidence is you know pointing us in the right direction but yeah it also reminds me of some of the writing of marshall McLuhan. who you don't know if you've ever read any no he was talking more about kind of media and culture but he has this concept of what he calls the rear view mirror that from a cultural and artistic point of view we always frame our thinking by looking backwards rather than pure creativity and, you know, unbridled expression looking forwards. He said there's always some element of looking back. And I think that's very similar to the point these two scientists are making. We do frame it in the reference of a very earth-centred, it's almost institutionalised, I think, in us to think of it in that way. I think it's very similar in the way we look at the difference between humans and animals, we kind of think we are something completely different to them, even yeah. though we're... You yeah, know. yeah. These two scientists were talking about organic life, but if we return to the idea of micro-alien reproducing technology, I thought a comet could also be a great source of material for these artificial miniature probes. Oh, yeah, yeah. You could almost... It could be like a lovely little breeding ground for mm. them. You know, and depending on how fast they travel, it could kind of help them travel around as well. Then I kind of moved on to start thinking about some of the stories out there relating to alien implants. Oh, yeah. So in a previous episode, we did talk about uh, Jeremy Corbell's documentary, Patient 17. Mm. So uh, that was the story of a man who had what was claimed by the patient himself and Dr. Roger Lear, an alien implant in their body. It was also claimed that tests were carried out on the implant and it contained, I think the phrase was exotic or rare earth elements, right? Mm, Yeah. Now, I know there are many out there who are critical of that film and I I, kind of mention it in the context of this episode because it, it made me think that stories like that don't have to have this huge alien abduction narrative or alien colonisation story behind it, right? Right, right, yeah. So I thought, well, it could just be as simple as an alien microprobe or a group of probes malfunctioning and embedding themselves in a human by mistake, right? Right, right, <laughs> I, yeah. You don't have to have this, I was taken on board the spaceship. And no, kind no. Of inst- could literally be they're flying around us all the time. Sometimes they go wrong. They think we're not a cave. That they think the human body's a cave and try and get in and you know. Yeah, yeah. Do their it's thing. just a it's just a machine going wrong. Yeah, yeah. That's um. Yeah, I have to think about that. But that is a absolutely tantalising thought. Yes. Well, again, in that kind of rear view mirror, looking back, it doesn't make the story as interesting. It doesn't make aliens very interesting does it no and i seem to remember i know I, I think it was i think it was bill clinton or there was at some point where they thought they might have found micro life on mars do you remember this i do yeah 
I don't think it turned out to be true. No, they thought they'd found a fossil of it. Yes, that's it. But because it was so small, everybody kind of went, oh, didn't really count then. Mm. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's like, so I I had that feeling. If we found a micro alien species on Mars when we go finally get there to visit, it's not going to be quite what everyone's expecting alien life should be, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it'd be fairly disappointing if it's... um... Well, we spoke about before um, uh, viruses coming into the Earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, And then being alien life. Yeah. Fairly disappointing if alien life is just a sneeze. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, all that also made me think of all the worlds because actually it was microbiotic life that defeated them, the alien invaders. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to end this episode with a story I think the late, great Douglas Adams might have in some ways liked. Uh, This is the true story, apparently, of a man who claims he found an alien implant in a rather sensitive and private part of his body. (laughs) (laughs) Now... (laughs) Um, If you've got younger ears with you while listening, it's up to you. You might want to save this bit for later. Um, This is the story of a man called Richard Price, who had a strange encounter as a child back in 1955. Price was near a cemetery in Troy, New York, when he claims he encountered two humanoids who took him on board their spacecraft and injected an implant under his skin. Not just any part of his skin, as Price claims the alien put the implant into his penis. I'm wincing wincing already. He recalls the incident. I was tied down to a table and they used a machine to scan over my body up to my neck. He then claims these aliens injected the implant into his manhood while he watched the procedure on a screen. After the implant had been inserted, one of the aliens told him, leave it alone or you will die. (laughs) (laughs) And go blind. (laughs) Now, Price remained silent about the incident until 1964, when at high school he told his girlfriend, who Ben, it seems, then told everyone else. (laughs) Don't do that. And then Price was given the nickname Spaceman, which I think is pretty lame considering the material they had to work with. (laughs) Honestly, you could have done a lot better than that. Yeah, Spaceman. Uh, He then got into a fight over this, this name-calling and people taking the mickey out of him, Uh, and he told the principal of the school the whole story. And do you know what the principal did? He referred him to a psychologist, a psychiatrist. That seems like the responsible thing to do. Yeah, but I think he did then get locked up for a little bit for being crazy. Oh. Yes, and he was only released from psychiatric care after, according to him, he falsely admitted the story wasn't true. And then they let him out. Nearly 20 years later, Price met a UFO investigator who convinced him to see a doctor. Now, amazingly, Ben, the doctor confirmed that he did indeed have a strange object lodged in his penis. 
But as Price felt no discomfort or pain, the doctor advised that no further action was needed. In fact, trying to take it out might cause more damage than just leaving it in. Right. However, in June 1989, while Price was getting dressed, in the morning, the object just fell out. Oh. It measured one millimetre wide, four millimetres across. It had an amber-coloured interior and a white shell. Price handed the implant over to David Pritchard, a scientist at Massachusetts Institute for Technology. Uh, And Pritchard went on to analyse what it was. When asked why Pritchard had agreed to investigate this object that had come from a man's private parts, the scientist said he agreed for one simple reason. He said... Proving that life exists elsewhere in the universe would be the biggest scientific discovery of all time. Doesn't matter where it comes from, right? I mean, he's got a point. (laughs) Yeah, he's got a very painful point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you want to know what the upshot of the tests were? Oh, it's going to be disappointing, isn't it? It is going to be a bit disappointing, I'm afraid. And Richard's... Uh, Pritchard and Price were also disappointed with the results of the analysis. It turns out the object was made of cotton and other natural body tissues that are produced when you get something stuck in a sensitive place. The conclusion is that when he was a child, a piece of Price's cotton underwear became lodged in his penis and it took 30 years to dislodge itself. Uh, which it's funny because you mentioned back didn't you that kind of that all that stuff so so here's my theory as a young child he's you know exploring his body as as they do i could imagine maybe someone from the family coming spotting it telling him off you know that kind of thing if you touch that you'll die or you'll go blind and all that kind of oh, stuff oh i see yeah yeah he's 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 incorporated this you know like we talk about yeah, those dissociated yeah, yeah. states dissociated state yes yeah yes. yeah so he's made up this kind of story probably out of embarrassment initially interesting yeah yes. and kind of had this old narrative however the scientists who uh investigated the object uh pritchard he still believes that this object could be the work of alien physicists. Of course he does. <laughs> this is a great quote. He says, It is possible that the aliens are so clever that they can make devices that serve their purpose, yet appear to have prosaic origins as natural products of the human body and fibres from cotton underwear. So this case only rules out the possibility of clumsy aliens. It does not rule out the possibility of super clever aliens. Clumsy aliens. <laughs> I mean, I think it rules in the possibility that it's cotton underwear. But... Yeah, I think so. That's been stuck there for 30 years. But it did, this whole episode did kind of make me think about the alien, the pos- prospect of aliens in a different way. I must admit that I always thought the stand-up theory, like, so the, the Fermi... Um, principle i thought was because the universe is so big mm. they're not likely to have got here but it's more thought, yeah it's more that because our galaxy is so young 
that they should be here already and the fact that they're not means that they don't exist. So that that surprised me because I didn't really think it worked that way. But I think the journey of, you know, if if there were normal size, as we would see it, spaceships, that probes that could replicate themselves, they could visit us with as, or at least all of the galaxy within half a million years, I think is incredible. And then when they get onto the micro level, it's just far, far shorter than that. But if you get on the micro level, yeah, we may not have seen them. They may disguise them really well. They might be like little flies or whatever. And certainly spy yeah. technology is going that way. If you think about yeah. craft, we've now got drones which are doing what a large aircraft would do. You know, there's all these stories of small spying devices. I think they're, they're I, I don't know if it's a kind of fictional thing, but I seem to remember a kind of probe that looks, or a, a spying device that looked like a small fly that yes. could be flying around, right? So why yeah. would aliens do that? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I suppose... It's just whether something so small has the technology to feed back to its masters, but but then you know we don't know what the technology is, so yeah, 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 it's possible, or at least I mean, may, you could see a kind of network where there's different size probes, and they're almost whenever they get closer to the planet, they're getting smaller, but feeding back to the bigger ones who are then feeding mm. back. You know what I mean, like a kind of relay system or something. Um, but yeah, I think next time I see a little fly or a little midgie or a fruit fly flying around, I might think to myself, "That's yeah, is that? Could that be an alien creature?" Smile and wave. Yeah, smile and wave. We're here. Yeah, yeah. That's gosh, you've really made me think. That's um, it's a bit of a head scratcher, isn't it? That one. My vacuum cleaner could be full of them. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a Dyson sphere, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't own a Dyson, but what, what an interesting idea. I suppose I'm still mostly blown away by the using conventional technology you could explore the Milky Way in half a million years. Yeah, I think it does, yeah, it does, uh, it does require speed of light travel, but, you know, we may, we won't, who knows how close we are to that. Wow, what a great story though! I like the um, uh, uh, I like the fact that you can mistake a piece of underwear for an alien probe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're very clever. They're very clever aliens. They're very clever. They're known as the Saint Michael's. <laughs> <laughs> we are from the planet Calvin Klein. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, that's my journey into the very, very small world of alien life. So, yes. Thank you. That was absolutely fascinating. Good. Well, we uh, will be back with our last episode before the Christmas, right? Yeah. So we'll yeah. be back next week. And uh, as Ben says, I think he's got... He's got something Christmassy cooking, so uh, definitely come back I for have, that. I have, and it's not sprouts. <laughs> and we will uh, we'll see you next week on the Quantum Mechanics. We'll Thanks see you for listening. Week. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
you the quantum mechanics.